Good evening and welcome once again to the history of lubrication. I'm your host, Gabriel Pericas, and we are recording this podcast at the Emily Harvey Foundation in New York City. Today is the long-awaited day when we begin to address the main topic of this show. It is actually going to be along with a few last remarks on Ottaviano, but we are finally going to talk about spit. Before we do that, though, I want to explain a little misunderstanding I had here with the audience that somehow got leaked and now people is going around saying that I'm an arrogant artist. I'm not, right? And the thing is that for some reason I often have bad luck with audiences. And But I relate to audiences far more often as another audience member than I do as a performer, right? For instance, recently... I attended this really beautiful flamenco concert here in the city, and right in the row in front of me, I had this group of people which embodied a portable anthology of audience misbehavior, right? They were talking among themselves, they were coughing, they were looking at their phones. But the worst part was how the three of them spent the whole concert writing. Yeah, they had pens, and they had a stack of papers that they kept shuffling around, and every time that something noteworthy happened on stage, they had to note it down. They had established this little assignment for themselves. I had to write this down before I forget or something. And one of them, in order to see what she was writing, she used the screen light of her cell phone to illuminate the paper, which in the full darkness of the theater, you can imagine, it was so annoying. So I was really upset, moving furious in my seat, about to yell at them, when I finally remembered one of the stories that you guys had sent me. It was Flora from Paris. And she said, when we were children, instead of spitting at each other at school, we would put a little bit of saliva on our fingertips and gently place it with slightness on our target's shoulder. Thus, we fulfilled our desire to humiliate the other, but we did so in an extraordinarily civilized way that prevented retaliation. So, in between songs, I pat the shoulder of that woman, and she turns around, right? And I hesitated a bit, but finally I whispered, Excuse me, may I borrow your pen for a second? <laughs> and she didn't even find it weird, right? And, and she said, Of course. And then she gave it to me, and obviously I didn't need to write anything. So instead, I took the pen and I licked it a bit, like that, like it was a lollipop. And of course, she, she didn't see it. And then I returned it and I just said, thank you. And that was it. They kept being annoying, but somehow I felt that I had won that battle. Now, during the recording of the last episode, I had a little confrontation here with the audience, right? This time as the performer. <laughs> the script I had written included a couple of jokes in the traditional sense, right, with, with, with punchlines. And basically, I have an audience here, so they laugh at the jokes, so we can record the laughter and add it in the edit that eventually goes online. Now, this event was cut out from the final podcast, but basically, I had to call them out for not laughing enough, right? I took off my headphones and I talked to them directly, which I usually don't do, and... Uh, just to ask if they could please cooperate a bit more. And unexpectedly, that address they found more amusing, and they laughed 
while that. And ha ha ha, wow, he's breaking the invisible wall, right? Wow, what is Marsh use of the distanciation effect? Ha 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 ha. And later in the episode, I made another joke that didn't get a laugh either. And, and so I, I made the gesture of like addressing them again, right? Only the gesture. And there I got the laugh, right? Only by pretending that I was going to talk to them again. And, you know, this was, this was all planned, right? It's, it's called a Pavlovian conditioning. And interestingly enough, in its origin, it's had a very direct relationship with spit. Ivan Pavlov was a Russian physiologist who was studying the role of saliva in the digestive system of dogs. And to analyze it, he obviously needed to collect samples, right? So what he did was he showed food to the dogs, which provoked salivation to begin, and then he redirected the flow of saliva to this test tube that he had strategically placed on the commissure of their lips. So all overflow was collected in the tubes, and they measured it, and then they put the tubes in the freezer and made popsicles. No, they didn't. Of course they didn't. That would be very gross, right? But I honestly wonder if it's frozen. I know it's dog spit, but if it's frozen, is it still that gross, right? And it's an issue that I'm genuinely interested in and I will definitely explore further in future episodes, saliva and temperature. But what happened to Pavlov was that he observed that the dogs who had been in his laboratory before somehow expected to be given food and therefore began salivating before the food was brought out. Pavlov noticed this and that's when he conducted his famous experiment. You probably have heard about this before. He asked for a new dog to be brought into the lab and he presented the dog with stimuli that were unrelated to food. He played a metronome or rang a bell and right after, he gave food to the dog, resulting in the production of saliva. And he repeated this procedure several times and saw so that the dog ended up establishing an inevitable connection between the bell and the food, so that eventually the salivation of the dog was activated by the sound of the bell alone. What I find the most interesting about this story is that it features saliva in one of my favorite capacities, which is uh, as a material manifestation of a desire. One that, moreover, is inevitable, right? The pathos of the dog is that it lacks the basic ability to conceal its appetite. So I was reading about all this and I thought, oh, this might have something to do with Carmelo Taviano. So I drafted a follow-up email to Lino, who, by the way, hasn't responded yet to the elaborate email I sent him. And so I wrote, Dear Lino, how possible do you think it is that Otaviano was attempting to condition himself in a Pavlovian way, insisting in the association of geometry and erotic images up until the geometry alone became sexually arousing, so that research was more appealing? <laughs> or perhaps the other way around, he was only turned on by the geometry, so he was placing spirals on naked people over and over until he could become aroused by the people. Either way, I imagine him lacking the basic ability to handle his own libido. I imagine his mouth flooded with saliva, like the dog he is. Sincerely, Gabriel. P.S. I recently learned from Roberto Bolaño about this ready-made that Marcel and Suzanne Duchamp made in 1919, involving the punishment of a geometry book by forcing it to interact with the chaotic forces of nature. I did the same to Otaviano's Lino. 
And additionally, I allowed people to spit on it to add an extra bit of shame. I obviously never send this email, right? Because at the end of the day, my hatred for Ottaviano is only theatrical, right? And from now on, I think I'm going to abandon this pretended hostility against him, which was really a satirical reaction to that accusation from the first episode, if you remember, saying that my work lacks a target, lacks an against whom. And I say that by now, if you don't know who the Patsy is, perhaps you are the Patsy. Now, the second part of the PS was not theatrical. When we finish this recording, we're going to open the window and we'll let the spectators here spit on the book if they want to express their own dislike. But if they decide to do it, they will need to aim accurately because since they will be spitting out the window, if they miss their target, they will be spitting directly onto Broadway, maybe hitting a random innocent passerby who is shopping and wary, which I'll find amusing, nonetheless. But um, we're getting off topic here. Um, what I wanted to talk about in today's episode is the text that really triggered my interest in saliva. And now we only have time for a brief introduction. It is the extensive definition that Michel Herry offered in 1929 in volume one, issue seven of the Surrealist magazine documents. In the same issue, uh, George Bataille famously defined the formless, and in his definition, he mentions spit as the paradigmatic example of the formless. As you know, for Bataille, formless was a derogative and disparaging term often used to create the illusion of a hierarchy where the formless goes at the bottom, so form, abstraction, metaphysics, and so on can go at the top. He says, for academics to be satisfied, it would be necessary, in effect, for the universe to take on a form. The whole philosophy has no other aim. It is a question of fitting what exists into a mathematical frock coat. And you can hear Ottaviano being summoned here. To affirm, on the contrary, but I continues that uh, the universe is only formless amounts to saying that the universe is akin to a gob of spittle. So Bataille uses spit simply as an instantiation of something defamatory, which is a property of saliva that we have already covered. Um, but as I said, in the same issue, Michel Herry offers an extensive and more complex definition of saliva. I will just summarize it today, but we will get back to it in future episodes. Herry exposes two meanings. The first one, he names the spittle soul, and it refers to the symbolic duality of saliva, from insult, as we have covered, to miracle, which is the other side of the coin, right? And the second meaning he calls the mouth water. In it, he points to the capacity of saliva to completely disrupt the hierarchical order with which we classify the organs of the body, right? The act of spitting, Larry argues, turns the mouth into an organ of excretion, thus devaluating its otherwise honorable role as a source of speech, the conspicuous sign of intelligence. Larry says, indeed, what value can we attach to reason or speech, and consequently to man's presumed dignity, when we consider that given the identical source of language and spit, any philosophical discourse can be figured by the incongruous image of a spluttering speaker. Now this quote was constitutional for this show, and it's a pity that we don't have more time to unpack it as we run out of time today. In the next episode, I will report on whether uh, the book gets spat on or else what whatever ends up happening to it. And in the meantime, please keep sending your material about saliva to spit at thehistoryoflubrication.org. 
subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media for updates. Do not forget to support us by purchasing the limited edition coffee mug of the show for $20, domestic shipping included. This was The History of Lubrication, episode number three. I am Gabriel Pericas. Old Sound was created live by Marina Miranda here at the Emily Harvey Foundation in New York, where the show was recorded in April of 2018. As always, goodbye and thank you for listening.